0: Vanula Darling from the Centre for Extramural Studies at the University of Cape Town, and it gives me huge pleasure to introduce this Fine Minds lecture by Professor Leslie Marks. Decades ago, Leslie was one of the most inspiring teachers I encountered in the English department at UCT, and like so many of her grateful former students, I remain her friend and fan. No wonder that Leslie was one of the early recipients of the University's Distinguished Teachers Award. Professor Leslie Marks served as head of the English Department from 1997 to 2000, and then as a deputy dean in the newly formed Faculty of Humanities. During that time, she steered the establishment of the Center for Film and Media Studies and became its inaugural director in 2003. Although she has published widely in the fields of literature and film and has written several comparative essays on the American South and South Africa, Leslie sees herself first and foremost as a committed teacher. The author Leslie will focus on this evening, Nell Harper Lee, died on the 19th of February 2016, having been both celebrated and, at the time of her death, controversial. The lecture, which Leslie has called Of Mystery, Manners, and Harper Lee, will explore Lee's life, the themes of race, class, gender, and religion in her writing, and the controversies generated by the two published novels and their relationship to each other. Other Southern writers who inform Leslie's reading of Harper Lee's work include William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, and Truman Capote. There's a land beyond the river
1: That we call sweet forever and we only meet that show by faith degree. Well, one by one, we'll gain the of there to dwell with the martyrs. For all the forever just be your shiny river, and they ring them. Are you and me?
2: heard Mahalia Jackson performing Jubilee, a hymn sung during a church scene in To Kill a Mockingbird, when Calpurnia, the Finch family's black housekeeper, takes young Jem and Scout Finch to her church with her. For me, the significance of the scene is evident in the cover of my edition of the novel, a 1968 reprint that I was awarded as a prize while a pupil at Germiston High School. My grateful thanks to my superb English teacher, Felicity Addison. On the cover is a sketch of congregants entering a typical southern church. A smartly dressed black woman rests her hand on a young boy's shoulder. The young boy holds the hand of a little girl. A Google search through the many different covers of Harper Lee's novel failed to yield this image, so I guess it's a very rare one. I'll talk more about the scene in a bit. Nell Harper Lee was born on April 28, 1926, in Monroeville, Alabama, to a lawyer, Amasa Coleman Lee and Frances Finch Lee. Her first name was her grandmother's Ellen, spelt backwards, while Harper acknowledges the paediatrician who helped save the life of her second eldest sister, Louise. Her eldest sister was Alice, who joined her father's law firm and with whom Harper Lee lived for most of her adult life. Her only brother, Edwin, died suddenly of a brain aneurysm in 1951. In a fascinating interview in 1964, she described her early life to Roy Newquist. They did not have much money or access to the movies, so depended on their imaginations and the stories that they read or that were told to them from a young age, which they would act out in the backyard. This is Harper Lee. Did you never play Tarzan when you were a child? Did you never tramp through the jungle or re-fight the Battle of Gettysburg in some form or fashion? We did. Did you never live in a tree house and find the whole world in the branches of a chinaberry tree? We did. She goes on to describe the community. In a small town and in rural life, you know your neighbours. Life is slower. You have more time to look around and absorb what you see. One recalls the marvellous description of Makham, the tired old town where, in Scott's memory, summers were hotter and people moved slowly, where ladies bathed before noon, after their three o'clock naps, and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. Lee's tertiary education took place at Huntington College, a Methodist college for women, followed by a period at the University of Alabama that included a term as an exchange student at Oxford. She studied law but did not graduate, instead going to New York in 1950. Here she worked as an airline reservation clerk and wrote at night. Her Annis Mirabilis was 1956, when she was given the gift of money by friends Michael and Joy Brown that would free her to work entirely on her writing. Their note said, You have one year off from your job to write whatever you please. Merry Christmas. The New York Times obituary offers the following account of what happened next. She took a manuscript called Go Set a Watchman to Agent Morris Crane. He changed the title to Atticus and sent it off to the publisher, J.P. Lippincott, whose legendary editor, chain-smoking gravel voice Tay Hohoff, saw potential in the manuscript. Although she also saw that it needed substantial reconceptualization and rewriting. Hohoff described the initial draft as more a series of anecdotes than a fully conceived novel, but appreciated that what she saw of the, quote, vivid and original personality hiding behind the author's intense reserve. More to the point, she continues. Professionally, I found an intelligence that could take a mere hint and run with it straight toward the goalposts for a touchdown. Hohoff worked with Lee for another three years before To Kill a Mockingbird found its final form. The massive success of the novel was overwhelming for Lee. She told Newquist, Well, I can't say that it was one of surprise. It was one of sheer numbness. "'It was like being hit over the head and knocked cold. "'You see, I never expected any sort of success with Mockingbird. "'I didn't expect the book to sell in the first place. "'I was hoping for a quick and merciful death "'at the hands of the reviewers. "'But at the same time, I sort of hoped "'that maybe someone would like it enough "'to give me encouragement, public encouragement. "'I hoped for a little, as I said, "'but I got rather a whole lot.' And in some ways, this was just about as frightening as the quick, merciful death I'd expected. Life magazine ran a tribute in May 2016 that sums up the achievements of To Kill a Mockingbird. They write, The novel eventually won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1961 and wrote the bestseller list for over 80 weeks. Translated into more than 40 languages, selling over 40 million copies, it would become one of the best-selling novels of the 20th century. In the 21st century, it sells a million copies a year. The book was promptly adapted into a beautiful and wildly popular movie in which Gregory Peck immortalised Atticus Finch, won the Academy Award for Best Actor and became a friend to the author. The movie was nominated for a total of eight Academy Awards and won three. Atticus Finch would be named the American Film Institute's premier movie hero of the century and would inspire generations of idealistic young people to flood into law school to become public interest advocates. Mockingbird would pop up at or near the top of every language great books list composed from the year of its publication on, occasionally beating out the Bible for the number one spot. Of course, there have been less adulatory moments, such as when a school board in Hanover, Virginia, in 1966, decided to ban the book for its alleged immorality. Lee's response was to offer a donation to enable the board to attend any first grade of its choice, as the problem was obviously one of their own illiteracy. The exchange with Roy Newquist was Harper Lee's last recorded interview, Here she offers her view of her task as a writer. I would like to leave some record of the kind of life that existed in a very small world. I hope to do this in several novels, to chronicle something that seems to be very quickly going down the drain. This is small-town, middle-class southern life, as opposed to the Gothic, as opposed to tobacco road, as opposed to plantation life. As you know, the South is still made up of thousands of tiny towns. There is a very definite social pattern in these towns that fascinates me. I think it is a rich social pattern. I would simply like to put down all I know about this because I believe that there is something universal in this little world, something decent to be said for it, and something to lament in its passing. In other words... All I want to be is the Jane Austen of South Alabama. As most listeners no doubt know, Lee's 1960 novel is told in the first person by Jean Louise Finch, whose nickname, Scout, suggests both her tomboy nature and her questioning, adventuresome spirit. Between the ages of roughly six and nine, Scout experiences the delights and disasters, the comforts and the crises of the small town of Maycomb in South Alabama during the years of the Great Depression. In the company of her brother Jim and their friend Dill, they navigate their coming of age. The central crisis concerns the trial of a black man, Tom Robinson, accused of raping a poor white woman, Mayella Ewell, herself implicitly the victim of incestuous rape and abuse by her father, Bob Ewell. Scout's father is appointed to defend Tom and does so as far as he is able. He demonstrates Tom's innocence, but to no avail as the all-white backwards jury returns a decision of guilty. Bob Ewell, enraged by Atticus Finch's defence of Tom, follows the Finch children home from the school pageant on a dark Halloween night and attempt to murder them. He is stopped and killed by Arthur Boo Radley, the mysterious man who has spent his adult life forcibly secluded in a strange house down the road from the Finches. Boo, who was the object of the children's voyeuristic fascination for the first half of the novel and the focus of their wild and ghoulish imaginations is revealed at last as both very brave and very shy, and also as their guardian and saviour. When Scout finally sees him, his fleshly reality is confirmed, and yet he remains strangely disembodied. Here is part of the memorable description. His hands are sickly white hands that had never seen the sun, His face was as white as his hands His cheeks were thin to hollowness There were shallow, almost delicate indentations at his temples And his grey eyes were so colourless I thought he was blind His hair was dead and thin Almost feathery on top of his head As I gazed at him in wonder the tension slowly drained from his face His lips parted into a timid smile "'and our neighbor's image blurred with my sudden tears. "'Hey, boo,' I said. "'A key sharer in Harper Lee's tale-telling early years "'was the young Truman Streckfus Persons, "'who would spend several of these years in Monroeville "'being raised by relatives before his mother remarried "'and took him to live with her and her new husband, "'Joseph Capote, in New York.' Lee's interest in crime was well satisfied by the invitation of Truman Capote to work with him on his investigation of the clutter murders that took place in Kansas in 1959. She travelled with a very eccentric Truman, eased his way into the confidence of the community, and took many notes which helped him with his work. One suspects that the extent of her contribution to the superb 1966 genre-breaking book In Cold Blood was enormous, certainly far greater than the miserly shared dedication of the book implied. It's generally agreed that Nell and Truman are the prototypes for Scout and Dill. The descriptions Lee offers of Dill in To Kill a Mockingbird are among the most endearing. He is a pocket Merlin, she says. Beautiful things floated around in his dreamy head. He could read two books to my one, but he preferred the magic of his own inventions. He could add and subtract faster than lightning, but he preferred his own twilight world, a world where babies slept, waiting to get gathered like morning lilies. Dill will express nauseated misery at the treatment of Tom and will decide the best thing to do is to be a clown so that he can take refuge in a kind of crazed laughter at the violence and evil of the world. Truman Capote's use of Harper Lee to model Idabel Tompkins in his baroque first novel Other Voices, Other Rooms, published in 1948, is more ambivalent Here he projects his own coming of age onto the young protagonist, Joel Harrison Knox. While Harper Lee did, according to her sister, play football and baseball with the neighbourhood boys while growing up and could be tough with a great line in invective, Capote introduces Ida Bell as a skinny, fiery, red-haired, freckle-faced, whooping termagant who, as he says, like every other tomboy, was mean, just gut mean. But she is also the adventurer who longs for travel and circuses and to be treated like a brother, not a future wife. After they part ways, Joel offers a mournful elegy, replaying images of her from the story he has just told. Still, Idabel was back, a ghost perhaps, but here in the room. Idabel, the hoodlum out of stone, a one armed barber, and Idabel with roses, Idabel with sword. Idabel who said she sometimes cried. All of autumn was the sycamore leaf and the red of her hair and its stem the rusty colour of her rough voice and its jagged shape the pattern, the souvenir of her face. All that was left was a souvenir in the end, for their ways parted, he to live a life of increasingly shallow celebrity spectacle fueled by drugs and alcohol, She to shape a life of privacy, reading, fishing, visiting with friends, going to church, saying hell no to requests for interviews, and spending time in New York where she was assured the anonymity she enjoyed. In her 1964 interview, Lee said that she was working on a second novel, but it goes slowly, ever so slowly. According to Alice Petrie, there is evidence that she became fascinated with a real-life account of five murders involving life insurance and voodoo that took place in a parish near Alexander City beginning in 1969. The killer was allegedly a local black minister, but no new novel appeared. And then, in 2015, a hue and cry erupted on the publication of a second novel, or really an earlier version of her first novel, Go Set a Watchman. Had the reclusive author, having suffered a stroke and in ailing health, really approved the publication? Was she the victim of money-grabbing machinations by her lawyer, Tonya Carter, and the publishers, HarperCollins? How could readers who had idolised Atticus Finch become lawyers because of him, named their children after him, adapt to this version of him, a racist who attends white citizens' councils and preaches the backwardness and inferiority of black Americans. In addition, what to do about the pages of poor writing where the simple plot depends on a grown-up Jean Louise visiting Maycomb from New York and discovering that her adored father has feet of clay. Characters, writes William giraldi raise their eyebrows so often you have to question how their foreheads turn to trampolines. When Jean Louise gets upset, which is always, her throat tightens and you wonder how she breathes through such frequent esophageal constriction. How should we engage with the almost unreadable second act of the novel with its ponderous dialogue and prosy debates? Indeed, one independent bookstore in Michigan, Brilliant Books, objected to the way in which the book had been marketed as Harper Lee's new novel and offered refunds to the disappointed readers. For some readers, this new publication necessitated a review of To Kill a Mockingbird. Although there had already been several critics over the years who had pointed out the failings of Atticus and the flaws in Harper Lee's political and moral vision, most notably the dissenting voice of Monroe Friedman, who argued in 1992 that Atticus exemplifies being rather than doing. He is appointed to defend Tom, after all. He does not volunteer his services. He is aware of the segregation in the town and his response to Tom's terrible death, 17 bullets no less, results in distress and disappointment, but not the rage asked for by critics like Giroldi, who sees Atticus as someone full of gestures rather than mobilising conviction. Exacerbating this reading of Atticus is his sexism. One example is his description of Eleanor Roosevelt as the dustaff side of the executive branch in Washington, who says Atticus is fond of hurling the concept of human equality. Reading To Kill a Mockingbird through the lens of Go Set a Watchman has highlighted Atticus's paternalism and accommodationism in relation to race, but also Lee's own flawed approach to class. On the subject of race, we have Sarah Churchwell arguing that the problems identified with Atticus's racism in Go Set a Watchman were there all along in To Kill a Mockingbird. Noting how his encouragement to scout, to walk around in other people's skin, can become a mandate to adopt an egregious moral relativism that makes excuses for even dyed-in-the-wool racists like the morphine-addicted Mrs. DuBose. Because she kicks her habit before she dies, Atticus pronounces her a great lady. One might be more inclined to go with Jem's horror at Mrs. DuBose's deathbed overture her gift of a white camellia to thank him for reading to her as she withdrew from her drug dependency. Old hell, devil! Old hell, devil! He screamed, flinging it down. Why can't she leave me alone? So, too, a lynch mob can be sweet-talked out of its violence in what Doris Betts describes as a Shirley Temple moment when Scout disarms one of the poor farmers by greeting him. Hey, Mr Cunningham! Mr Cunningham's violence is waved away by Atticus as simply a blind spot. And for Atticus, the Ku Klux Klan are merely a political party whose power is superficial and can be turned by good-humoured townsfolk. In 2007, I was commissioned to write an article for a book on Harper Lee, focusing on the reception of To Kill a Mockingbird in South Africa. I interviewed a number of teachers who taught the book at black-coloured and white schools in the Western Cape. Most teachers found the novel to have been extremely successful, both a wonderfully told story and a way to engage with the vital race issues of the time, the 70s and 80s. One dissenting voice raised the problem, though, that Tom's story is embedded in the larger story of Scout, Jim, and Boo. Indeed, Tom is killed stage several chapters before the end of the book, and we end with what John Carlos Rowe calls a white denouement. As early as the publication of the novel, Flannery O'Connor had written dismissively of To Kill a Mockingbird. Having been sent a copy by one of her friends, she wrote, I think I see what it really is, a child's book. When I was 15, I would have loved it. Take out the rape and you've got Miss Minerva and William Greenhill. I think for a child's book it does all right. It's interesting that folks are buying it and don't know they're reading a child's book. Somebody ought to say what it is. Sarah Churchwell, writing in 2015, concurs, observing that To Kill a Mockingbird is a consoling book and a childish one. It knows that democracy, justice and courage are good and that racism, incest, and false allegations of rape are bad. Good white people are so good that good black people stand up when they pass out of respect. And this makes no one uncomfortable. Bad white people die or disappear from the story. There are no bad black people at all because that would undermine Lee's racial parable. What O'Connor and Churchill implicitly marginalize is the centrality of the rape. To some extent, the rape theme may be seen as merely a plot point. And indeed, both Tom Robinson and Mayella Ewell are written out of the story immediately after the court scene. Yet that court scene opens up issues of race and class in the novel that bear closer scrutiny, especially if one takes into account the historical context of the notorious trials of the so-called Scottsboro Boys that started in Alabama in the early 1930s. Nine young men were accused of rape by two women, poor whites and prostitutes. The trials dragged on until 1976, when the last of the accused was pardoned. Race and class come together in the use made of the controversial term white trash. I'd like to go back to the church scene that I mentioned a while back, as it brings together several terms that I have used so far, from the mystery and manners I refer to in the title of this talk to the portrayal of race and class. I derived the terms mystery and manners from Flannery O'Connor, who argued that both were necessary to the imagination of the writer, that is, both a sense of religious mystery and a sense of customary manners that would forge the complex vision that she sought to convey. Bringing mystery and manners together Ralph Wood proposes rather splendidly that good breeding and gracious manners cannot serve, of course, as a surrogate for grace itself. Yet, in a culture at least nominally Christian, the two orders of grace should not be totally alien. There is something profoundly courteous in the call of the gospel to count others better than oneself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In Mockingbird's church scene, the two orders of grace come together in the warm reception given Jem and Scout by Calpurnia's fellow churchgoers, although this cannot quite elide the problem of white privileged children being given place in the first row, as room in the first row will later be made for them in the coloured gallery at the court during the trial of Tom Robinson, Would such manners and such graciousness have been extended to young black children visiting the church? There are interesting points of contrast and connection between Lee's church scene and that in William Faulkner's 1929 novel, The Sound and the Fury. Here Dilsey, the Compson family's black housekeeper, takes Benji, the family's mentally disabled son, to church. We see the ease with which the black community accepts Dilsey's gesture even though the white community looks askance. Dilsey's response is a forceful rejection of white opinion. Here is Faulkner's approximation of her accent. Trash white folks. They thinks he ain't good enough for white church, but nigger church ain't good enough for him. The good lord don't care whether he bride or not. Don't nobody but white trash care dat. Dilsey expresses her contempt through a term of opprobrium for the white underclass. Although her judgment of the disapproving whites is an astute assessment of white hypocrisy and effectively erases the classist meaning of the term white trash. One may also recollect the moment in To Kill a Mockingbird when Atticus complicates the term white trash. Any white person who mistreats a black person is no better than white trash, he says, regardless of who he is, how rich he is, or how fine a family he comes from. This is all well and good, but then Atticus follows up. There's nothing more sickening to me than a low-grade white man who'll take advantage of a Negro's ignorance. This looks forward to Atticus in ghost as a Watchman, pedantically explaining to an angry Jean Louise how the Negroes are backwards and still in their childhood. They've made terrific progress in adapting themselves to white ways, but they're far from it yet he generously concedes. To the extent that the Atticus of Go Setter Watchman is overtly marked by paternalism, gradualism, and racial prejudice, Giroldi notes, a Watchman is being published during a summer when the wounds of Ferguson still suppurate, when the city of Chicago is a weekly hecatomb, when ashes still darken the air of Baltimore.' when a South Carolina police officer awaits trial for the on-camera killing of Walter Scott. It took an imbecilic warp assassinating nine peaceful human beings at a church in Charleston for South Carolina's leaders to sprout a conscience and pack up an omni-bigoted and insurrectionist flag, a nauseating cost. And, climactically, he writes... If you could further pollute Donald Trump with a blather of Ayn Rand, you'd have someone who looks a lot like the Atticus Finch of Go Set a Watchman. As I type this, Donald Trump has just been elected the 45th President of the United States. Speculation has it that the same working classes who voted for Brexit have made their frustrations heard again. This takes us to the question of class in To Kill a Mockingbird. Especially the underclass, the so-called white trash. Several readers have noted the raw deal suffered by Mayella Ewell in the novel. Scott characterizes her and her family as a type. Every town the size of Maycomb had families like the Ewells. No fluctuations changed their status. People like the Ewells lived as guests of the county in prosperity as well as in the depths of a depression. While Mayella's slop jars holding brilliant red geraniums are a sign that there is a trammelled but gallant aesthetic sensibility that undermines any stereotyping of the young woman, we are nevertheless returned to stereotype once she starts testifying against Tom Robinson. A young girl walked to the witness stand. As she raised her hand and swore that the evidence she gave would be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help her God, she seemed somehow fragile-looking. But when she sat facing us in the witness chair, she became what she was, a thick-bodied girl accustomed to strenuous labour. Angela Shaw Thornburg argues that what we see here is an example of the white trash scenario in which she says responsibility for the lethal racism of the South and the failure of the law to function impartially is displaced onto poor white working-class people, thus relieving middle-class and affluent whites of culpability for the aftermaths of white supremacy. When Atticus delivers his closing speech to the jury, he acknowledges that Maela is the victim of cruel poverty and ignorance, but he cannot pity her, she is white and goes on to castigate her for acting on her desires, tapping into the stereotype of the poor who cannot control their urges. He proposes that her subsequent actions were those of a child seeking to hide what she had done, thus infantilizing her. There is, of course, no follow-through on the evidence that she has been beaten and raped by her father, and we never know what happens to her after the trial. Nancy Eisenberg's recent study on white trash argues that the practice of writing off the poor goes way back to the founding myths of a nation as a classless, exceptional, promised land. She writes, Before it became the fabled city upon a hill, America was in the eyes of 16th-century adventurers a foul, weedy wilderness, a sinkhole suited to ill-bred commoners. It was a place into which the English promoters of migration, settlements and investment could export their own marginalised people. The representation of Bob and Mayella Ewell in the 1962 film adaptation takes on special interest. Both roles are well performed, although James Anderson as Bob is not given much more to do than look mean and evil, a typecasting that bedeviled most of his career. Of more interest are the off-screen revelations on the DVD documentary about the making of the film. Gregory Peck and others comment that Anderson knew the life of, and identified strongly with, the character of Bob Ewell. That he revealed contempt for Peck as a Hollywood leading man, and was hostile toward Brock Peters, who plays Tom. Philip Alford, who played Jem, tells how he and Anderson enacted the Halloween fight for two days. Not all the footage was used, but there was real violence, including the unfaked yanking of Alford off-screen by his hair. The blurring of boundaries between real and fictional experience of class rage in the story of James Anderson is inflected very differently in regard to Colin Wilcox's superb portrayal of Mayella in her only scene, the one at Tom's trial. We are distanced from Mayerle in the novel's careful framing of her through the observing eyes of Scout and the build-up of empathy for Tom and Atticus. But in the film, we engage with the character directly through close-ups. In addition to an extraordinary performance by Wilcox, her physical look, the contortion of her body and gestures force us to engage with what Wilcox describes as Mayerle's terrible entrapments by life, by her conditioning, by hatred and prejudice and poverty. Wilcox grew up in Highlands, North Carolina, a small town in the southern Appalachian Mountains, and was herself involved with desegregation activities with her parents in the 1950s. Her granddaughter Chelsea Horne writes of her, she said she believed she could play the character of Mayella, the daughter of a racist, because she understood both sides of the racism issue. In her interview with Horn, Wilcox noted, "'I had known girls from that kind of background "'and recalled at the audition for Maela, "'all the other girls trying out for the part were overly made up. "'They had curly, clean hair and wore brassiers and high heels. "'I wore a second-hand dress, tennis shoes with holes in them "'and dirty little white socks. "'I rubbed cold cream through my hair. "'That's why my hair looked so dirty.' She points out in the DVD documentary that Mayella would have had all her time cut out seeing to the needs of the motherless family, looking after the passel of children, and would not have had time to tend to herself. Wilcox's analysis of Mayella offers an insight into the young woman, her sexual desires, her sexual plight, the many reasons why Tom would be so deeply appealing to her. The novel scarcely engages with any of this. Wilcox also describes the moment where she, as Mailer, might have been tempted to tell the truth, but one look at her father, and here we cut to the film's image of Anderson's cruel, gimlet eyes fixed on her, prevented any such confession, because, says Wilcox, I looked at my daddy and knew what would happen once she got home if she didn't perform well on the stand. The slippage between the actor I and the role she suggests the power of method acting here as Wilcox inhabits Mayella and brings her pain and desperation to life. Colin Wilcox grew up in a family already educated into the need for human equality. Jem and Scott's education is the main burden of Lee's novel and their going to church with Calpurnia opens up her other world to them in significant ways. While the potential for fervent religious faith may act as a panacea for life's troubles and inhibit political activism, it is also true that the presence of visceral religious belief and forms of worship may be energizing and inspirational. This comes through in Mockingbird through the power of the singing. Both Jubilee and on Jordan's stormy banks are lines by Carl Sanzebo for an audience that does not read. They therefore depend on him to call out the lines of the hymn, and says Scout, miraculously on pitch, a hundred voices sang out Zebra's words. Holden servant by the use of hymn on Jordan's Storms the bank of sand. Before we sang this song, we'll ask the brothers to lead us in a word of prayer. While he pray, all us pray with that the Holy Spirit may come in, that we have a spirit
1: of prov- revival. Brother us lead us in prayer. Almighty and everlasting thou art God. I want to ask thee this evening for a special prayer yes. on the man of a- catching the record for you. Yes. And oh, Jesus, make him a man of God. Yes. Hold him in your merciful hand.
3: Amen. On your storm the bank I stand and
1: cast the wood for life.
3: On on yeah. Hey! Yeah.
2: Faulkner's novel, A Kind of Grassroots Christianity, is expressed in the passionate sermon delivered by a visiting preacher whose version of spoken English changes dramatically. He starts off sounding like a white man. His voice was level and cold. But as he builds in power, he cries out, I got Rick Liction and the blood of the lamb. As the black folk leave the church, they praise the sermon and Dilsey, tears coursing down her cheeks, stares. I've seen the first and the last, I see the beginning, and now I sees the endin'. Black American English here signifies an intense emotional investment, as well as an apocalyptic visionary power, and the visiting preacher is able to move across forms of the spoken word. So too, language in To Kill a Mockingbird is invariably figured as a space for invention, reinvention, and self-invention, from the gothic imaginings of the children and their performance of stories to the more politically savvy play that Calpurnia engages with in the church scene, to which I now return. Here Calpurnia demonstrates a deft balancing act as she negotiates white and black worlds. She surprises Jim and Scott when, amongst her fellow churchgoers, she changes her speech patterns from the way she speaks in the Finch household. When the children assume a judgmental view of what constitutes the right and the wrong way to speak English, Carl's view is a great deal more sophisticated and shows her to be a skilled performer of shifting identities. Scout notes, "'That Calpurnia led a modest double life never dawned on me. The idea that she had a separate existence outside our household was a novel one, to say nothing of her having command of two languages.'" Cal's skill illustrates her good manners and speaks to a modern awareness of how identity may be the product of agency, may be constructed, and not be imprisoned by concepts such as fate, nature, or history. The importance of the church scene leads me into my final observations. Ghost as a watchman shares with To Kill a Mockingbird at least the pervasive southern religious sensibility from the title which is drawn from Isaiah 21, one of the many catastrophic visions in that prophetic book, to the heated discussion after a church service about tampering with traditional hymns such as Abide With Me and Rock of Ages, to the hilarious flashback describing Dill, Jem and Scout's play-acting, A Fundamentalist Christian Revival. The moment when Dill appears in a bedsheet with holes cut out for his eyes and pronounces modestly that he is the Holy Ghost is an especially clever satire on the Ku Klux Klan and its toxic relationship to white supremacist, segregationist readings of the Bible. What struck me most about Gersetta Watchman, though, was the sense that Harper Lee was, in this early work, struggling to articulate her own sense of where she belonged in time, place, and the tumultuous history of the moment of writing. The diametrically opposed worlds of New York and Maycomb are foregrounded in several scenes, and the writer's ambivalence toward both is notable. This example comes from her visit to Finch's Landing. On the one hand, the place is haunted by its slave history. On the other, the changes that have been wrought there cause Jean Louise to feel a deep pang of frustration and regret. When you live in New York, she says, you often have the feeling that New York's not the world. I mean this. Every time I come home, I feel like I'm coming back to the world. And when I leave Maycomb, I'm leaving the world. It's silly, I can't explain it. And what makes it sillier is that I go stark raving living in Maycomb. The lines from the poem she murmurs are drawn from Matthew Arnold's The Buried Life. And then he thinks he knows the hills where his life rose and the sea where it goes. The other significant intertext from Victorian poetry is Robert Browning's Child Roland* to the Dark Tower Came. Jean Louise repeatedly sees herself as Child Rowland, whose quest shadows hers. The poem's disturbing wasteland imagery frames Child Rowland's mysterious journey that ends in an unnervingly suspended moment with, merely, Child Rowland's arrival at the Dark Tower. The possibilities for reading Jean Louise as a wanderer in a devastated world with only darkness before her is tempting the Southland of the novel is then refracted through the terrifying wastes of Browning's poem and, indeed, through the apocalyptic landscape of the passage in Isaiah from which the book's title is drawn. The many literary allusions in the novel are testimony to what Lee was reading at the time and how she deployed her passion for creative language in her attempt to mediate life through her writing. Always a central text for her was the King James Version of the Bible. And Maria Mills, the journalist who lived next door to the Lee sisters for several years, wrote of how this love of the Bible linked Lee to southern literary tradition. She quotes from one of Lee's favourite writers, Eudora Welty. How many of us, the South's writers-to-be of my generation, were blessed in one way or another in not having gone deprived of the King James Version of the Bible? Its cadence entered into our ears and our memories for good. The evidence or the ghost of it lingers in all our books. In the beginning was the word. We play out with another version of On Jordan Stormy Banks, this time sung by the sacred harp a singers. Lee once said that if she ever wrote her memoirs, she would take the title from a line in this hymn, Where My Possessions Lie.
3: On yeah. Jordan Stormy